so this particular panel is a little bit different. We've got um, book authors here on presidential power, uh, well-known scholars, um, and so I'll go through and introduce them in a little bit more depth. But we have we have Sai Prakash, John Yu, and Julian Mortensen, who is working on a book. And so the hope here is to get three really experienced scholars who have thought an awful lot about what kind of power is vested in Article Two of the Constitution together to talk about the different work they've done looking at the evidence, how their views line up or diverge, and what the implications of their view are for the operation of the modern presidency. So we're going to start with Sai Prakash, who is the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law and the Albert Clark Tate Jr. Professor of Law at the UVA Law School. His scholarship focuses on separation of powers, teaches constitutional law, foreign relations law, and presidential powers at the law school. And his most recent book, The Living Presidency, An Originalist Argument Against Its Ever-Expanding Powers, is the focus of the discussion today. But so much of his scholarship is summarized and unpacked in a book he wrote in 2015, Imperial from the Beginning. And I encourage you to check out both of them. He is a former clerk to Justice Thomas and to Judge Silberman. And so we're delighted to have him here today. And then we have uh, John Yu, who is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of Berkeley School of Law. He's a non-resident senior fellow at AEI a visiting fellow at Hoover, and his 10th book, Defender-in-Chief, Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, is going to be part of what's fueling our discussion here today. Um, he's published more than 100 articles. He used to work um, in both the executive branch of government and the Department of Justice and then also in the Senate. He is also a former Silberman and Thomas Clerk. And then we have to give the Hero Award to Professor Julian Morrison, who's agreed to be on the panel with three Thomas Clerks holding down the fort. He is a Justice Souter Clerk, and we're delighted that he's here talking about presidential power in his up-and-coming book. And he is... Um, the James G. Phillip Professor of Law at the University of Michigan Law School and is also an active litigator on the side with the courses that he teaches and has a new con law case book that's come out just this past year. Um, previously worked in the president's office of the International Criminal Tribunal and before clerking for Justice Souter was a clerk for Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit. So I feel as though there could not be more knowledge about presidential power and scholarly history unpacking the um, Article Two evidence than we have up here. So we're going to dig right in and hear what everybody has to say. So sigh to you. Well, it's a it's a distinct pleasure to be here today. Uh, it's just quite an honor, and I want to thank the center for inviting me and and for giving each one of you a copy. And I want to rest. I want to assure you that there are other copies online that you can. Give to your uh, friends and relatives. So don't, you know, treat this as a starting point, as a jumping off point, not as an end point. Because once you read it, it's just so gripping that you'll want to share, share the message, share the good word. So, um, you know, the book, uh, I'm going to give you a sort of a brief thumbnail sketch of the book and then turn to presidential administration. Uh, the book, you know, has a chapter on the original understanding. What people, I think, often don't understand is that the the Constitution wasn't created as a reaction to the monarchy. The Constitution was created in a context where people thought weak executives and strong legislatures were a problem. And so they created a really strong executive, more powerful than had existed in any of the states at the time. And how do we know this? Because look at the powers that it had and compare them to the state governors, right? The president had a veto, not absolute, but fairly strong. The president had authority to execute the law, direct the execution of the law, an interstitial authority over foreign affairs, um, pardon power. Um, and when people looked at this office, they said it, re- you know, it resembled a, a king. Right? Both Jefferson and Adams said this, the second and third uh, presidents. 
and a bunch of other people said it as well, mostly said by anti-federalists, um, but not uh, sometimes by federalists as well, right? So that, you know, I think what, uh, I think what uh, Adams described the presidency as, as, as a Republican, limited Republican monarchy is somewhat apt. And we don't see that because of the, you know, the title. But if the, you know, if the, if the Constitution had added a scepter or a throne to the office, we would see the, we would see the resemblance right away. We don't see that precisely because those, tra- those particular trappings aren't there. But you might think what matters, uh, whether something is a kingly office or not, or a powerful office, is not the trappings, but the actual powers. And they are, they are considerable. Um, this played out in early, you know, in the first Congress in various ways. Of course, there was this removal debate, and we know its outcome, although it's what it meant is disputed. But it played out in other ways as well. People know about how they thought about giving a title to the president, his, his, his highness, the president. Um, but it also, they talked about including the president and the enactment clauses being enacted by the president with the advice and consent of the two chambers. That's not what we find our enactment clauses, but there were people that wanted to uh, put that in the enactment clauses of every statute. And then there were people that wanted writs from the courts to issue in the president's name. Uh, that did not pass the Congress, but the Supreme Court did it anyway, right? They did it anyway because they thought they had the authority to do it unilaterally. These were all attempts to, to take, a, I think, a, a kingly office or a regal office and make it more powerful. And as Jefferson said, some people want to make the monarchical parts of the Constitution stronger, and other people want to make the Republican parts of the Constitution stronger. And this was someone who basically admitted it had features of both. Um, having said all that, there were obvious limits to what the president can do. John and I differ in, in various respects. I would say the president can't start a war. Uh, that's what it means to declare war. If you start a war, you have, uh, in fact, declared it. The president's authority over foreign affairs was interstitial. He couldn't make treaties on his own. He couldn't do anything he wanted to in foreign affairs. Congress has significant authority over foreign affairs. And the president was to be a faithful ex- you know, executive. Right? He's supposed to execute the laws made by someone else, not meant to be a lawmaker himself. Um, so the, the, the point of the book is to say that those conceptions of the presidency have gone by the boards, that the president um, is far stronger today than at the founding, even though at the founding, the institution itself was supposed to be strong and was in fact strong. And so the way I think about it is where the president was strong, the presidency is now stronger still. Where it is weak, it is now strong. Um, if you take a look at war powers, it's, it, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that if I'm right, that the president couldn't start a war. Presidents are doing that all the time. Um, with very little resistance, certainly not successful resistance. Take the example of Libya. President Obama didn't think that that was authorized by any AUMF. In foreign affairs, we have all kinds of workarounds with respect to the treaty clause, right? So-called congressional executive agreements, which did not exist at the founding, and an expansion of sole executive agreements. And then the topic of today's conference, right? Presidential administration. Uh, the presidents, presidents today are making laws uh, via delegations from Congress. Uh, They're making laws, I think, under the guise of this sort of Chevron doctrine, which I don't think is a delegation from Congress, but which is instead sort of a delegation from the courts. And then they're engaged in all kinds of creative, I think, uh, misguided and um, dishonest interpretations of statutes to either advance their party or personal agenda or to do things that they think are just right. right? And we might agree that they're right even as we think they're doing something wrong. how does how has that happened? I think we have a, a much different conception of the presidency than we had in the 18th century. Right? We think presidents have a popular mandate. We're apt to think that. We think presidents should run on a platform and make promises. That just wasn't true at the founding. 
right? Presidents did not run for offices with a party platform and making promises about what they would do once in office. They ran on their resume. What have I done for this country in the past? Am I someone that you can trust with this office? That's totally changed, right? Uh, By the mid 18th, the first presidential promise I found was I won't run again, right? That those now we expect a laundry list, right? And the president actually sort of dominates the the, the party platform because the president's the 800-pound gorilla in his party. Um, think about the idea of a popular mandate. You can't have that when half the states are appointing their own electors, right? Um, as was often the case for the first 30 or 40 years. Today, we think that the president should, in some measure, get his way. Um, so I've got two minutes, and I'm going to get to the end. Um, when you think of presidential administration, there's a narrow conception and a broader conception. I think people here have been talking about the broader one. Go back and read Federal 72 and look at Madison's, uh, sorry, Hamilton's definition of uh, presidential administration. It doesn't include rulemaking. Most, but most of what we're talking about is basically presidential lawmaking from three sources, right? Express delegations from Congress to the agencies of the president, the so-called Chevron doctrine, which is supposed to be interstitial. And then, I, again, earlier, these sort of outright misconstructions of statutes to advance policy goals. And I think what we've seen over the last, you know, uh, two or three decades is an increasing willingness of the administration to engage in presidential lawmaking and not what I would regard as presidential administration. It's one thing for prosecution to be centralized in the executive branch and in the presidency. Presidents have long directed prosecutions. Presidency, I don't believe, has a constitutional authority over lawmaking. Uh, But that's what presidents are essentially exercising in a world where Congress has delegated all sorts of lawmaking authority to the president or to the agencies that he he controls. And it's things like the Chevron Doctrine. It's things like these public expectations on the presidents that really propels presidents to engage in more and more lawmaking. As someone said earlier today, if you're going to blame the president for all the ills of the country, it's not surprising that the presidents are going to try to grasp for whatever uh, they can do to solve those ills, right? Um, and so I think it's it's partly expectations. It's partly Congress for delegating all these things. It's partly the personal failings of president to not presidents for not understanding the, the limited ambit of their office that leads us not to the narrow conception of presidential administration uh, in in Federal seventy two, but to the broader conception we have today, where the president's really a, a secondary Congress, right? A junior varsity Congress of the sort that Justice Scalia. Uh, denounced in Mistretta. Thank you. John. I also want to thank uh, Jen for inviting me along with uh, Adam. And uh, it's a real pleasure. Uh, I, it's uh, uh, fun to uh, sit in an administrative law uh, conference, which I don't do very often uh, for two reasons. Uh, you know, when I, I come away understanding even more why administrative law is where all the action is in public law these days, um, based on the papers I saw. Um, two, it reminds me why I really hate administrative law and hated clerking on the D.C. Circuit and couldn't stand going to work every day because <laughs> I don't understand the Administrative Procedure Act to this day and why it applies to some things but not other things. But from the papers I saw, you guys don't know either because yeah. that's like one of the big arguments, right? So I'm glad to, you know, to be in touch with administrative law again. Um, I'm going to try to situate where my book sits between where I take Julian's work to be, where I've read in his law of articles, and Cy, who um, Cy and I clerked together. We shared a little office for a whole year together, but I don't think we argued about executive power back then in that little office. Um, I think of Julian, uh, and this is meant to purely as a compliment, as the modern-day Helvidius, 
Right? I think of him as the James Madison in the Helvidius Pacificus debates. And a lot of your arguments are, you know, you know, echo his. I think you make them in different ways, but uh, I think basically your argument is that the executive power clause in the Constitution doesn't really give a lot of added power, that the core power of the executive is law execution, which is already stated there. So the argument simply is, if it's stated there, then how can you then read in more powers when already the core power is enumerated in Article 2? And I think I would bet if you counted up the majority of constitutional law scholars uh, have shared that view over the years. Um, Sai, I think, is a weakened version of Pacificus, of Alexander Hamilton in the Pacificus papers. Uh, he's like weak gravity or whatever those weird muons or whatever are. I'm strong gravity. I actually take more of the pure Hamiltonian position. So I think where Sai and I disagree, I think where we agree is we both think that the executive power clause does have some substantive content to it, um, which is, you know, Madison took you know, the opposite view in Helvidius. Um, and I think where Sinai disagree is what are the powers that came along with the executive power clause and which were the ones that were given to Congress? Or to put it differently in that those debates themselves, do you read the powers transferred by the Constitution explicitly to Congress? Do you read those narrowly uh, or do you read those broadly? Do you read the, if you read them narrow, you know, as narrow restriction or withdrawals from the executive power, then that means presidential power is fairly broad. But if you read it right the other way, then you have the opposite result. So I think that leads Sinai to disagree on some things like we could talk about later, the declare war clause, uh, like the existence of executive privilege and so on. Where we probably tend to agree is um, not only does the president have the power of law execution, uh, but he has the power or she has the power of removal of executive officers or, and that he or she has the power of command and direction of executive officials. Now, again, I think Hamilton was the one who first came up with this, um, where I think I maybe my work I added to it uh, was in two respects. Um, Sai has done a wonderful job in his work about looking at the um, English antecedents and then those powers. I, I would say Hadley Arcus is here. His work very much influenced me because he is the one who thinks a natural law of the time should be used to interpret the Constitution. So when I read his book about um, Justice Sutherland, it caused me to think, what did the natural law lawyers think executive power was at that time? And so if you go back and read it through from to Locke, Blackstone, all the way back to Machiavelli, you see, I think, uh, that the executive power is not some laundry list of things they called executive, but there was a, the, the nature of executive power was this ability to act quickly and decisively, primarily in response to emergencies, war, unforeseen events where legislatures could not or were unable to act. And I think that was my new thing that I said, was that we should go back all the way to Machiavelli and then think about the executive power in that respect. And then the other thing I think I, where I, I and maybe this is why I'm even stronger on it than Sai is, I was very much influenced by the work of uh, Gordon Wood and people who thought the Constitution is a, is a document meant to enhance executive power, not to continue the kind of anti-executive state constitutional designs we saw right after the revolution, which were considered to be failures, and which is why we had a constitutional convention in the first place. So uh, like Sai, I wanted to you know, then focus my remarks more on the question you're all here about, which is presidential administration or presidential relationship with the administrative state. And so uh, I have to tell you, when, so when my agent and publisher asked me if I could write a book on Trump and the Constitution, 
I had to say that's not going to be a, a light lift or an easy project. So what I thought I would do is think about all the, I treat them like a gas molecule. It's like bouncing around all the time, but it's actually subject to broader rules that the gas molecule doesn't know about. And that's the way I treated what happened in the Trump years. It was like there are these broader changes in the separation of powers that have been going on for a long time, and that Trump had his own personal incentives and reasons for doing things, but it was still part of right, the laws of you know, physics or whatever. So, so one thing I made uh, um, a point is how, how to understand uh, all the Trump's firing and claims he could pardon himself and claims of privilege. To me, it all read like right, a continuing effort by the politically elected branches, like the, through the president, to claim more direct control over the bureaucracy. Uh, and this is not just something that Trump's in favor of, right? This is something we were talking about uh, Justice Kagan's article, the Clinton administration was in favor of. Um, certainly, I think the Obama administration was in favor of. And it's something the Supreme Court's in favor of. The Supreme Court has been pushing this ball along too by uh, removing the protection for the removal of independent officers. Uh, I, I would think the next step actually that you're going to see on the court's part is whether um, independent commissions like the FTC and the FCC are still going to be protected by for-cause removal or not. It's so far, what it's been doing is sort of chipping away at sort of new agencies that have been created more recently. But the logic of these cases really brings into doubt, it seems to me, independent agencies. Um, however, I think there's enormous you know, political uh, weight in favor of keeping them. But I think that's the next natural step. I think I could see a challenge to civil service. Uh, tenure. I'm not saying it's unconstitutional, but how broad are we going to read the ability to remove civil servants for cause or abuse or neglect, waste, and so on? Um, Would defying a presidential order be uh, for cause removal permissible under the civil service, under the Pendleton Act? So I think that's what the second thing is. Asai is certainly right that presidents stretch the law. Uh, This is not, again, I argue this is not necessarily a Trump thing. I mean, Trump certainly stressed the law. I think President Biden has made equally aggressive claims about his statutory authority. Uh, both presidents, for example, said that they could impose a moratorium on evictions. And the Supreme Court just gave its view on whether they thought that was legal. Uh, President Biden's about to issue OSHA regulations. Right? He certainly got to believe that the president can order the head of an agency to issue certain kinds of regulations. I think this is very much along the lines of the things we saw uh, in the Trump administration. So uh, my time has uh, run out. The last thing I'll just throw out there for discussion is what do people make about uh, the DACA program and the Supreme Court's decision in the DACA case? And then I throw out whether President Biden can continue the DACA program or, or not, because I think that raises a lot of these. Is the president really charged of law execution or is he subject by Congress to the APA and whether courts got it right in the Board of Regents case? So uh, thanks very much, and I look forward to uh, the discussion. Thanks, Julian. Um, well, I will join my thanks to, to Jen and to Adam and to the Gray Center for including me in this terrific gathering. Um, it's been a great day. I've really enjoyed the presentations, and I'm pleased to have the chance to talk with you all today about um, uh, presidential power and react to Sai and John's um, books in the course of a conversation. I was thinking about the through line for me of reading these two books (coughs) and how it connects to the separate work that I've been doing on the scope of presidential power under the founding understanding. 
And it's interesting because I think my <clears throat> arguments about what presidential power looked like at the founding push in different ways on each of these books. If I compare <clears throat> the understanding that I think I'm uncovering to John's, it's much less powerful. If I compare the understanding that I think I'm uncovering to size, it's much more powerful. And I think that some of the recent um, engagement around the non-delegation doctrine, which I had thought is sort of a trivially included implication of the larger executive power um, research, is illustrative of the way that that's not entirely clear. So let me take a couple of moments and suggest um, how I think my research suggests the president was understood at the founding, um, and then offer some larger reflections on um, uh, how that plays into the theme of this conference. So, big picture, original founding arrangement, the understanding of the document was as a document that enumerated powers, right? Whatever else it did, it enumerated authorities. If you can't trace some, uh, you can't trace an, active, an action to some affirmative source of authority in the Constitution, then you're acting um, without authorization. The president has very, very few powers, very few affirmative enumerated powers. Some of them are crucially important and uh, like massively empower the president vis-a-vis -vis most um, governors and sort of executive councils that existed at the time, the, the veto power, the appointments power. This was a seriously powerful player in democratic politics. Um, uh, one of the powers that is both more and less powerful that has been understood is the executive power. Right? The very first sentence of uh, Article 2 references the vesting of the executive power in the president. Um, uh, the historic view, I think it's fair to say, has been dominated by an argument over just how big a reservoir of power this was. Um, uh, the presumption, at least as I encountered it um, as, a, as, a, as a young lawyer and then as a, as a scholar, was that we were arguing about the boundaries of executive power in terms of just how much substantive activity it authorized. Um, it turns out that that's really not how the founders talked about executive power or about how they talked about what it meant to govern. You need to keep in mind two different things, competences and the sort of functions of government. Competences have to do with subject matter, health, war, uh, uh, nuisance, commerce, like things in the world that one would need to direct one's attention to. The functions of government have to do with how government formulates its intention and then carries it out. And there's lots to say about this, but at the bottom line is the way the standard governance grammar of the founding worked was that the legislative authority was the authority to formulate authoritative intentions and the executive authority was the authority to implement those intentions. So again, in some sense, this is a much thinner, I mean, in crucially important sense, this is a much thinner authority than the view of executive power that inherently includes substantive foreign affairs and war authorities. From another perspective, though, I mean, Congress is really significantly empowered under the new constitution and with a unitary president who has the power to implement those instructions um, that the Congress gives him. This is an immensely powerful office, albeit a, um, a, an office that is, um, uh, I guess I'd say, the power of which is latent rather than immediately manifest upon the creation of the new constitution. Um, the executive power is, and I mean, you know, there's lots of uh, uh, lots of stuff in the stuff that I've written about um, sort of substantiating this, but just illustrative quotes. Um, the executive power, the, the role that it plays in this, in this system is Gad, Gad Hitchcock, a, a, a pastor and 
um, in Boston says uh, during a really famous sermon in 1774, the executive power is strictly no other than the legislative carried forward and, of course, controllable by it. And that's completely representative of how they talked about it, because without an instruction from some um, antecedent decision by an authoritative lawgiver, there's nothing to execute. So it is the lawgiver and the intention formulator, that is to say, the legislative power, that defines the entirety of what the executive authority is going to implement. So um, when you step back from this, um, the picture of the presidency that emerges, and what I'm principally interested in now in trying to pursue a book project on, on the implications are, what does this understanding of the first clause of Article 2 tell us about the founder's conception of what the president would do? Well, in the first instance, the power itself was, again, immensely important, but empty until filled by a set of instructions. You can impose negative prohibitions on people in the world pursuant to the executive power to the extent that those prohibitions are authorized by Congress. You can undertake affirmative projects in the world to the extent that those projects are authorized by Congress. Um, This is understood to be an incredibly important power, but a power that is definitionally subject to the legislative power, which I want to sort of start to close because I know we're coming up on time, by emphasizing doesn't mean Congress. It means bicameralism and presentment. And this is one of the ways in which the notion of the messenger boy or errand boy presidency um, misses the mark because the president, him or herself, is involved in the process. It's going to define and potentially at some points restrict the contents of the authority that he or she has to implement. And um, uh, to the extent that that's true, um, it is a process of intention formulating reflecting the 18th century grammar for talking about this kind of stuff, rather than an institution. It's not Congress versus the president. It's that process by which legislative intentions are formulated as connected to the implementing agent for those instructions. Now, was that all the president had? Definitely not. There were a number of other ways in which um, the powers given to the president um, left him, A, a really significant political player, and B, with really important control over the administrative trade, circling back to the, um, to, to the focus of, of this conference. Um, and what I'm interested in doing and tracing out is to, is to see how this understanding of the presidency cuts across a whole range of executive powers controversies. National security, diplomacy, removal authority, which I think, I think is an interesting example of a close call, actually, and the best understanding of how to carry out the formal conception of executive power, emergency powers, delegation, oversight. The implications of this understanding of what the president could do really spill across the entirety of separation of powers law. So that is what I'm interested in exploring in the ongoing project now and looking forward to to talking about it with you guys. Excellent. Well, thank you all very much for setting out those views. So three different theories. I mean, I am interested in exploring today, actually, as a bottom line matter. I mean, exactly how you all perceive your views to come out uh, differently in terms of the bottom line, like you said, Julian, with removal um, and the interaction between the president and Congress and war and things like that. First, I thought I would give each of you an opportunity to take a couple of minutes, if you want, to respond to the initial comments made by your fellow presenters, and then I can help, we can direct the conversation maybe to some topic areas um, and then open up to the audience. But 
side you have, or who wants to go first? Does anybody have a counter or question based on each other's presentations? I'll go first. Um, so um, John says he's Pacificus, and, and I think he says that Julian is Helvidius, and I guess I'm, I'm uh, nobody. You're, um, you're baby Pacificus. Baby Pacificus. Um, I, you know, I think if you read those papers very carefully, they both uh, endorse the vesting clause thesis. Madison says that removal is an executive power. There is no statute that conveys removal authority over the hundreds, if not thousands, of officers in the early republic. But presidents claim that authority nonetheless. And so I think the problem with Julian's theory about law execution is there are many people that say executive power goes beyond mere law execution. And, of course, Julian's article says at times that it includes appointment authority. And then at times it says it includes disaggregated authority. Well, once you understand that it includes more than just law execution, you've given up the game. The question then is what else does it include? The other thing I'll say about Julian's work is he cites state constitutions that talk about other executive powers that grant the state executives certain powers, which you might deem executive, and then grants other executive powers. If there's only one executive power and it's the power to execute the law, these constitutions don't make any sense. And I think they make sense because there are other executive powers. Now, Julian deals with Montesquieu and Blackstone by saying that they're not referring to a, a definition of executive power. They're referring to the person who has, you know, they're referring to a sort of a noun or something rather than defining what executive power is. Even if he were right about what Blackstone or Montesquieu were actually trying to convey, it is a problem for his theory that so many people apparently get it wrong in the first several decades, right? Jefferson says uh, management of foreign affairs is executive altogether. Washington acts that way. The Senate refuses to open foreign communications on the grounds that that's only something the president can do. You can look in vain in the Constitution for anything that says that, save for the vesting clause. Um, as for John's view about Pacificus, Pacificus says that the president can't start a war. And John has the view that the president can. So I think I'm Pacificus, and he's a Pacificus plus. Same thing by Pacificus plus. So that's, what, you know, that thanks for giving me the chance to, to say a few comments. So much of what you said um, characterizes Julian's work. And is that, act, I mean, would you have a, you want to take a moment to respond? Yeah, these are really important points to sort of try to unpack the unpacking of a really complex set of conversations that are proceeding according to a relatively shared grammar. Um, I think the first thing to understand is that what it meant to execute the law, what is entailed in the process of execution from the beginning, is often argued to include the, the, the necessary entailment of making appointments. How can the king, Bratton says, how can the king, Blackstone says, how can the king, Cook says, himself or the queen when she's um, in the office, implement the, the implement the laws. He or she can't. It is inherent in the implementing of the laws and the enforcement of the laws to appoint. And then, you know what? Like, you could argue, and this is where I kind of come down equivocal on the merely formalist question. You could argue, and I'm open to the argument, at least as a formalist matter and without looking at subsequent history, that um, removal is also included in the executive power. I think that's at odds with what we see in actual British practice where the crown is said to have executive power and there's lots of people who are tenure protected. I think it's at odds with similar tenure protections for um, other officers that we see in the early republic and the delegation of lawmaking authority enforcement to other players in the system. But like, I'm open to the possibility that the logical entailment, some people talked about, the, about them as an entailment. Some people talked about, about them as sort of a 
a functionally necessary set of administrative mechanisms to perform the function. But that is simply conceptually utterly nothing to do with a basket of a substantive authorities that the royal prerogative was. So um, to suggest that appointments sometimes are described as executive shows that we're only arguing about the price, we're only haggle haggling over the price, betrays a misunderstanding of how prerogative function and what it meant to actually implement the executive obligation. Second thing I'll say is um, the most sort of, I think, fundamental, um, surprising to me discovery that I made in the course of trying to articulate um, what the sources seem to be showing to me was um, how often, and I think understandably, the reaction among a whole set of players um, over you know, a century plus of arguments about this has been to look at um, accounts of crown power, of presidential power, of state governors, of how the documents in these different places allocate powers, and look at statements about what the executive can do, what the executive authority can do, in the sense of the person, the institution, the entity that is charged with the executive power, right? The, the Blackstone is clear on this, um, it's clear as it could possibly be. The prerogative is held by the executive authority, is held by uh, the executive branch. That's a claim about powers held by an institution. It's simply distinct from a claim about what the power is. There's haggling and debate and discussion about who should have what powers, but that, the thing that we call the executive, has this list of powers, one of which is executive power, simply doesn't map onto the claim that executive powers includes the whole list. Okay, so I, I, I know I said, John, John needs to have a chance to speak. I'm going to try something different. Though. Are you, because I was, well, was going to follow up on this precise discussion. If I, can I, Go ahead. May I, may I, <laughs> okay, and uh, we'll, we'll give you plenty of time. I don't Unless, need time. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess what I was going to ask of both um, Julian and Sai is it strikes me listening. I mean, the initial way that you all define executive makes it sound as though there is a big practical distinction, right? The way that Julian describes it is just about law execution. So it's empty. There's no royal prerogative. Sai has this really um, interestingly named book, The Imperial Presidency, right, which calls to mind the monarch. But, I mean, both of you, I think, agree that Congress in Article One was given a lot of powers that touch on foreign affairs and national security. So make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces, declare war, raise and support armies. So I wonder if, as a practical matter, what the differences are in terms of where you come down. And even because, Julian, as you're talking, you're saying, well, actually, my position is not just that you can carry out the law. Exec to execute the law carries with it appointing officers who have to execute it. Presumably, there's some supervisory or directive authority there. I don't know what your view is on that. Removal, possibly. It makes me wonder, well, if the instruction is to take care of the laws, be faithfully executed, are we sure there's no room, even in that theory, for the president protecting the nation that is supposed to, for which he's carrying out the laws. And then I guess side on, on your side, I mean, would the book title Imperial Presidency at the end of the day be suggesting too much? Because so even if executive included prerogative power, it's peeled back so much in the Article One regulations, it no longer looks at all like the monarchical power. And so then I'm left to wonder, other than 
our starting point of our our disagreements. At the end of the day, what powers does Julian think the president lacks that you think he has? I'm going to let Julian go first. Gosh, I'm actually not completely um, sure in some respects how they cash out um, on concrete disagreements on the, gr- on the ground. I think that um, both Sai and John are, um, I think it's fair to say, strongly committed to the unitary executive thesis around removal. Um, and I think the evidence on that is plausible but equivocal. Again, as I said, um, with depending on how much weight you give to a theory of constitutional interpretation that proceeds from textualism and logical exegesis, right, as compared to uh, an an exploration of actual political practice in the late 18th century, both before and after ratification. I I can imagine, um, uh, I I get the claim that removal is entailed. Um, It appears zero times, like literally zero times until the, I mean, not even a reference to removal. It's actually, it's truly weird. It's, it's weird and I think probably has something to do with their idea about what appointments meant um, in terms of like selection of best characters and so forth. Like it, it almost, well, I don't want to go off on a big digression, but, but it, is, it, it is odd and was surprising to me that I have yet to see a single reference to the removal power as something that anybody even discussed um, uh, uh, before the decision of 1789. Um, I could go on, but I don't want to talk too long. That, 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 that would be one way I think I, I, I see space, but I, I certainly am not as strong on that power as I think you all are. Yeah, well, I mean, like every, you know, there are a lot of academics in this room, and you can <laughs> fight about things that don't matter as an academic. That's your prerogative. <laughs> That's your right. So, you know, Julian's not the first person to criticize the claim, the Hamiltonian claim, the Jeffersonian claim that the executive power includes foreign affairs, right? Kurt Bradley and Marty Flaherty wrote a piece saying the same thing several, maybe a decade or so ago. Curiously, they got to the exact same, almost the exact same conclusion as Jefferson or Hamilton by just saying that the power to appoint ambassadors gave you the power to direct them and the power to make treaties gave you the power to control foreign communications, even though no one ever said that. So it's an, it's an interesting, you know, sociological question why we do what we do. I'm just as guilty of it as everybody else. The part of the problem is I don't know where, you know, where, you know, I don't know where Julian's going to end up with respect to foreign affairs. I don't know if he's going to have a theory for why it is that the Senate refused to open up documents and why it is the president gets to fire ambassadors when you're not executing any law or, you know, why it is that the, you know, the president gets to tell them what to do even when they're not negotiating a treaty. I don't know where his scholarship's going to take him. We, you know, Ramsey and I wrote that piece about uh, executive power over foreign affairs to try to explain why we think our theory makes the best sense of the practice and how it also coheres with what Jefferson and Hamilton and, and Washington and John Jay and others said. Um, but, you know, the, the world does what it does without regard to what, <laughs> what uh, some academics write. Well, so John, and John uh, on the panel, I guess, I don't think Ju- Julian, neither you nor Cy were in the executive Branch. So John's the one. I mean, because you said theory. Uh, and so John, I, was in the executive. I was in the Bush administration. Oh, you were? Okay. All right. I just, okay. Well, anyway, uh, John, as a practical matter, how, tell us how, I mean, in your view, everybody else up here is wrong. It's actually not a practical matter. That What I was going to mention is that this is actually might be seen as a dispute over how to do originalism. Okay. So, so tell us about that. So uh, Julian says, I think, I heard you just say that the, um, vesting clause approach is really textual based and then you sort of make inferences from the text. Um, but that's, to me, it's because that's what Hamilton did. And 
I think the thing to caution about reading the text and coming out with some completely different theory about how things worked is to make sure it's consistent, I think, with the secondary literature from the historical profession or the political science profession, the people who do political theory or the people who are writing books about the founding. And so that was, I have to say that when I was looking at that, I'm very heavily influenced by um, Gordon Wood and his students' work on this. They're the ones who, you know, wrote long before law professors came to it, saying, you, you know, you should understand the Constitution as a reaction to excessive legislative power. And, you know, he's the one who started pointing to all these things that were not just in the constitutional text, but in the history of the period that showed a restoration. Of so there's, you know, the guy, there's, you know, uh, a guy named Willie Paul Adams, who's a guy who wrote, the, sorry, the definitive book, I think, about revolutionary state constitutions. And his view was the amazing thing about the federal constitution is what the states did is they tried to, it goes to your point about the difference between institutions and the power. He said, what the state constitutions really tried to do is break up the institution of the executive by, you know, like my home state of Pennsylvania had a 12-member executive governor. It was just ridiculous. And then he said, what's remarkable is that by the end, by the time you get to the federal constitution, it's a restoration of the executive powers into one person, which he finds incredible. But then he said, but the powers themselves didn't shift. And he said, so what you should do is look back at the English experience because, right, as of 1776, they were all English, right? They were, all their constitutional reference terms were English constitutional terms. And their claim was that the executive power was the, right, was substantive. Um, I, as a matter of original, uh, how to do originalism, I tend not to place a lot of importance on the Philadelphia Convention because it was secret and it wasn't known to the ratifiers. Uh, records don't come out until Madison dies. You know, Mike McConnell just wrote a whole book about the president's powers just focused in the Philadelphia Convention. And it seems to be his view that the delegates thought that there was a substance to the executive power clause. It just seems to me what the, the historians are saying is that if you were a, uh, you know, someone voting in 1787 to 88 on the Constitution and you looked at the text and you compared it to what you thought the British experience had been and what British constitutional terms meant, you would have thought that the president was assuming more than just the kind of law execution function. So I think, I would just say when you do the book, I think you want to engage those other historians because they, um, when I've talked to them, they are much more skeptical of our, I think, which is the lawyer's majority view that the presidential executive power is actually really, really narrow. They, 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 but, you know, that's, that's what you write the book for is like engage with Wood, Balin, Nelson, someone mentioned Nelson this morning. They, you know, they have this very strong executive power view of the Constitution. So, um, oh, and then this is where I disagree with Sai. So with Sai, with the declare war clause is a good example where we disagree is uh, then the question is, where do you, how broadly or narrowly do you construe shifts where the framers did obviously move a power out of the list of executive powers into legislative like declare war? So I sometimes, I mean, I think the way you do it is you look, what did the British constitutional practice? Did they say declare war meant start wars? And then look at how often did they declare war? And so what I did was how many times did the British declare war before hostilities started? And I think in the hundred years before <coughs> the Constitution, I found one. Usually the wars were going on for a long time before there was a declaration. And I said the one obvious example 
to the founders would have been the Declaration of Independence, which is a declaration of war. And that comes over a year after hostilities start in the colonies. So I just don't think they associated the phrase declare war with start war. Um, I think that's more of a sort of modern way we understand. I mean, now it's colloquial. You say declare war, start war, or interchangeable. I don't think that was the case back then. But again, it's a, a question of originalist methodology. Like what's more important, what they did or what they said? And I think looking at the practice that they put in, that, you know, formed around the words of the British Constitution are extremely important, but also harder for lawyers to recapture. It's much easier to look up the records of the Philadelphia Convention, for example, than to figure out how they did things uh, well, 200 years ago. Well, and also it seems to me that part of the complexity, right, is, is you know, sometimes we're looking at British practice, but sometimes we have the fact that we, um, you know, we're trying to throw that off in some ways, but then we have the Articles of Confederation, right? So there's all these intervening things that mean it's sometimes mm-hmm. hard to know which history to transport. To ask a follow-up on your point about the difference between you and Sion the Declare War Clause, I mean, there's also an Article One, you know, general, uh, at least by its terms, broad power for Congress to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. So how does that cash out for you in terms of the president's commander-in-chief? I mean, I take size work, and maybe I'm overstating it, but to almost suggest that we're talking about many rules, even directing the president in war sometimes to be able to take certain activities or not. Um, you know, John, for you, military tribunals, you know, national security strategies, do they come within Congress's regulatory power here? Or is there some reason to read it so narrowly that uh, the comm- that, that that's an improper regulation of the commander-in-chief authority in your view? Um, so I... My view is that uh, if you were going to assume the declare war clause is just about the legal status of the conflict, and then all these other questions you ask are really to be uh, hashed out between the two branches based on these other uh, these allocations of other powers. Okay. Regulation, governing the military, raising the army and navy versus the commander-in-chief clause. Um, and actually, I, I'm curious what Julian thinks about if the commander-in-chief clause is kind of just a sort of, right, the definition of the institution, but it's not really the power. That, that, that's Because that's a, actually an explicit discussion of the office and an institution rather than just sort of leaving it up to Congress. But uh, where I, I think I differ with size, again, I went back and said, let's look at how those British constitutional terms actually were put into practice by those people at that time. And so they would not have thought the declare war clause was the key to starting war because there were no existing armies and navies. Right? Presidents would go to Congress and say, please build me an army and navy to fight this war. So it gave the Congress the all-consuming check on war. It would, it would just would seem weird that it would be declare war. And I think this was true of the British period, uh, the British as well. So what you had is Parliament really exercising this check on the king. And, and not just in war, but all these questions about administration, too, primarily through their funding and supply power. And you go back and look at the base of our parliament constantly uses that power and talks about that power as the main check on what the crown was up to. So I so in all these questions like national security strategy, so on and so forth, it always seems apparent to me that, yes, the president can make the claim he's commander in chief. It's not just an institution. It's a power. And Congress can make it impossible for him or her to carry out their plans, just like I think they can do it with the administrative state, too. They could just defund uh, offices, right? They defund agencies. They can defund programs if Congress really wanted to do it rather than right, acting through sort of formal, you know, uh, policy lawmaking. Okay, so in your view, it'd be fine for Congress to defund the army, 
but not okay to say you can to the president you can send the army to Syria, but you can't yeah, send it to. Syria. I got a great hypothetical. Okay, comes from Afghanistan. Okay, if you had the view that it's really Congress sets the policy and the president is carrying out like law execution, could Congress have passed a law saying you cannot leave Afghanistan? Right? Could Congress say you are you you must continue to fight in Afghanistan? You know, John's scholarship was very uh, powerful and eye-opening. Right, his piece in Southern California Law Review on what it means to declare war, and he convinced me uh, until not I did, long enough, not long <laughs> enough. But I, you know, I, then I I did my own research. I read Mike Ramsey's piece on what it means to declare war, and in the 18th century, you could declare war formally or informally. If you started a war, you were said to have declared war. And all the international law rights attached to informal declarations of war. That's what I think the meaning of declare war was in the 18th century. John wants to adopt the narrow sort of, it's a document. And, and if you don't have a document that uses the words, you haven't declared war. Um, the problem is there are dozens of founders who say the following. The president cannot start a war because he cannot declare war. Now, John just can't account for that in his, under his theory because this just doesn't make any sense if all it is is about invoking the laws of war. With respect to micromanagement of wars, we had a micromanaged war while Washington was alive. It was called the Quasi-War. And if you read the statutes of Congress, they are doing precisely what John said they couldn't do, right? They are telling the president where he can station ships, which ships to attack, which ships you cannot attack. They're doing all the kinds of things that are sort of you know, maybe bad ideas as a matter of policy, but they're doing them. John Adams is signing them. George Washington is, you know, is still alive, and he's not saying they're unconstitutional. We had a commander-in-chief before the Constitution, and he was subject to congressional direction under the Articles Confederation. That office does not imply autonomy from the legislature. That's, that's sort of my view. And I don't think Washington thought that either. Right? He, he had been the commander-in-chief. So if you're going to recreate an office that doesn't come freighted with autonomy, you're just merely the first general, as Hamilton says in the Federalist Papers, why does it now come with this autonomy with respect to military operations after the Constitution's created? And how is it that Congress is thoroughly regulating the conduct of warfare in our second war, right? the quasi-war? So I, so I want to give Julian a chance to speak on the Commander-in-Chief Authority if he wants to, but I still just have to say, in light of that, I don't understand the 2015 Imperial Presidency book title. It was meant to be provocative. <laughs> but it was like, I would say the following. Look, it is still a monarchical institution, even though it is limited. Montesquieu said that England was a, mon- was a republic disguised as a monarchy, right? And he was comparing it to things like France, right, is- where they had an absolute monarchy. So here's the problem that we have. We Americans think either you're, you know, either you're a republic or a monarchy. In the 18th century, they had mixed republics, mixed monarchies. They had some elements of monarchy and some elements of republicanism. We just don't want to understand that as a possibility. And so we're either one or the other. People at the founding knew that you could be both, and so they weren't troubled by that. So it's, you're right, the title suggests the president can do whatever he wants, but you can be a monarch and still be limited. It was a very provocative title. It just seems to me that perhaps to folks who have not gone through the entire book and then your latest one, that maybe folks assume that you, I, I think they might find it surprising that you think Congress can direct the, I mean, the president. And so when folks are then 
thinking later about what it means to have the view that executive power has some independent content, it may lead folks to assume, for example, that you and John line up more similarly with your bottom line than perhaps you do. But Julian, I want to give you time to talk about Commander-in-Chief or whatever you want to say in response to this, and then ask everybody one last thing to lead us back more to domestic law um, after you have a turn. I think on the Commander-in-Chief power, I'd mostly... um Cosign what Tsai said, um, uh, ditto on the d- declare war power. I think that fairly captures the conversation um, uh, uh, around those powers in the late 1800s, 1700s. Um, it's interesting because I, I think it's maybe worth emphasizing the stakes of debate, kind of circling back to your question, Jen, not from a contemporary perspective, mm. but from the perspective of the actual historical people who argued and like fought like cats in a bag um, and finally generated something that was ratified. This, what's at stake in the argument about the scope of the executive power isn't a strong president versus a weak president. It's a super strong president or a super strong president with a bunch of powers that aren't written in the Constitution, right? Like on everybody's understanding of a head of the executive branch who had the appointment power, who had the veto power, who could make treaties. This was somebody who, had, who was generalissimo, commander-in-chief. This is somebody who has been reinvested in presumptively a non-derogable way with a number of the prerogatives of the crown. This is a really big deal and frankly kind of scary for the very large contingent of people who had a sort of knee-jerk, uh, certainly not my term, but I think it fairly captures um, the tenor of the times, tyrannophobia. Um, And so one of the really fascinating things about the course of arguments that emerge around Article 2 is how the – I mean, again, argue about the term, but the anti-federalists, the loose coalition of people who who resisted um, ratification. It was such a standard move for them to, you know, wax – to get very, very worked up about the fact that we're basically – adopting and endorsing a king. And over and over again, the move from the Federalists defending the Constitution is to say, allow me to walk you through the powers, if I might, and to go step by step through them. There's just some wonderful sarcasm and derision that emerges. Hamilton talks about the the purple diadem that's imagined by those opposing the crown. And they they walk through the powers. They talk about what um, the powers entail. And they say, what snake in the grass is there here? What what, what unspoken things are there here? Um, We have left nothing to implification is um, one of the words that pops up. You don't, there's not a process on this account of what happened with the empowering of the president, under which there are unwritten non-textual powers that are going to be sort of in a cloud conveyed um, with Article 2 because of the general fact, and it's an indisputable fact, that what they wanted was a way stronger Congress and a way stronger president. Both 100% true. And that's what the law execution presidency, with the veto, with the power to implement um, what we're now calling rulemaking authority, but um, uh, you know it entails the, the creation of uh, 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 instructions pursuant to instructions from Congress. This is an extremely powerful president, just not a president with unwritten authorities in foreign affairs, with unwritten authorities in national security, with unwritten authorities to, with, to do with the military, or with unwritten authorities to do with emergency power. None of that was in there. And they made the point over and over and over again and saying, yes, strong, but don't be ridiculous. This isn't somebody who has all the prerogatives of the king. But that's an interpretive question because 
in the Philadelphia Convention, you're right. They say things like that a lot. James Wilson, for example, says that. But in this very same Federalist Papers you refer to, right, Hamilton does say, here's the king's powers, here are these powers. But then in the later Federalist Papers, how do you make sense of that, where he says it's not just law execution, it's also protection of the community from foreign attack. It's not just execution. So that's, that's why I was asking you about the commander-in-chief power, because if your view were right, and I actually think if size were right, you don't need the commander-in-chief clause in there at all, right? Because right, Congress is in charge of policy. The presidency is already the office. Why mention it? Even? So that's, that's what I think. I, I think the founding is a really complicated, sometimes contradictory. Hamilton himself sometimes is contradictory in the Federalist Papers, but it's not obvious that it's just right, empty. Executive power is just empty, too. Okay, just to be super clear, and I'm going to shut up. Yeah. Not executive power in the broad sense of what powers the president has. Executive power in terms of what is contained and authorized by that first clause of the Constitution. It's absolutely right that you need to look at the other clauses of the Constitution, including the substantive ones, to get a full understanding of the dimensions of the substantive power. One of the ways in which I've reconciled myself to, to Zivotofsky, uh, and I know you guys are all eager that I do so, um, <laughs> is, by, is by remembering that you can kind of squint at the Receive Ambassadors Clause as the court kind of does, and work your way from that to a claim that that logically entails the power to recognize. And I get that move. Um, if that were grounded in the open-ended sort of vesting clause theory, theory of the vesting clause, um, I'd have a tough time with that. But it's really important to remember that there are other clauses in, the, in Article 2. Okay, so that, that's, that's great and very helpful discussion. And I mean, I hear what Julian is saying, that if you think that executive power has more than that, has aspects of foreign affairs and military, it could lead to very vast power. And certainly, in a sense, if you interpret it the way that John, John is talking about, it, it can lead to broad powers that sometimes Congress can't regulate in certain ways. It seems like Sai is saying a lot of work's being done in Article One, where the power can be regulated. So I think the bottom line difference there, maybe between how the two of you would come out, is a little bit difference, and it's not perhaps as scary, the Prakash argument, because Prakash is actually saying the president can do significantly less in those areas than we might think. So I have a question about how you all come down on one power that's listed in Article 2, and it doesn't say anything at all in Article 1 about Congress regulating it. So the pardon power, is there anybody on the panel here who thinks that the pardon power which is mentioned in a particular way, but not in the full panoply of what it could be, right? You're not pardoning for state offenses, so it's a certain pardon power. Does anybody here on the panel think Congress could regulate a use of the pardon power? I mean, I'm pretty sure I know how John and Psy, I mean, Julian, how does that cash out under the executive as a law executor view? I don't, I don't have a from-the-hip answer. I'd emphasize in the first instance that I don't know that the law execution view of the executive power clause is here or there on how best to understand the pardon power. One of the most intriguing, and I don't really know what to do with it, although it's consistent with what um, Jonathan Gnapp um, is arguing in his most recent book, one of the most intriguing and puzzling threads that pops up over and over again in the conversations during ratification is the idea that the veto is crucial because otherwise Congress would take away the president's constitutional powers. And that like just doesn't process for us or certainly for me. I read that. I think it's supposed to be, what, what, do they, what do they mean? How, what are they talking about? I don't move from that to then, therefore, a hard claim that, of course, the best understanding is yada, yada, yada. But there's like a, definitely a thread in the conversations about what the legislative authority can do under the Constitution that, again, I want to emphasize, 
very weirdly, seems to contemplate that Congress could eliminate the president's powers by statute. I feel like that's not how they could have come down under any interpretation of how the two things interact. But, you know, Jonathan Gannett's work suggests that the notion of fixation, as, as we often um, talk about it now, um, uh, uh, with a document that sort of took on a, a reified status, that that wasn't right. I don't know that I agree with Jonathan all the way down the line, but in any event, that's my big waffle. I don't know what to think. I'm not sure what to think. Here's a weird thing that's true, which is that a bunch of them seem to have assumed that you could eliminate presidential power by statute. All right. And one thing, Adam tells me we can go a few minutes over, so I'm going to torture you all just a little while longer, if that's okay. But And John said at the beginning he wants to talk about this. So, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about, right, is the interaction between Congress and the president. What about on the purely domestic stage in the area of enforcement discretion and the DACA program? How does that cash out for everyone here, right? I mean, there's immigration laws on the books, deportation requirements. The various presidents have said we have enforcement discretion to not apply those, to give grace for a certain extended period of time. Um, Does that fit within the president's enforcement discretion power? And if so, why or why not? Can I accuse Cy and Julian of taking the view, (laughs) I think this is your view, that could Congress actually override prosecutorial discretion, which is not mentioned, right? There's the enforced laws, but could Congress say you must bring X number of cases of immigration removal every year? Not just we're going to give you enough money and we'll give you the personnel, right? But just say you must remove 200,000 aliens from the United States this year. Uh, and you actually, so eliminate prosecutorial discretion. I seem to think that they're making the argument that they could. The Cong- I'm sorry, the Congress. But you don't think they could. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that I mean, I think the DACA program is an exercise of prosecutorial discretion. My argument is I don't know if you can take it to zero, where you can use prosecutorial to say, I will bring zero cases and effectively say, so this law is just never going to go into effect. I think that's an interesting argument. And so I think the court's wrong in um, Board of Regents. My employer actually won. <laughs> but I think it's the, the case uh, where the court says, I think that's the way I read it, that the use of prosecutorial discretion is now subject to the Administrative Procedure Act because you didn't go through the right APA procedure to end the DACA program, even that was created by prosecutorial discretion that did not go through the APA. That doesn't make sense to me. I, I think maybe all of us might agree that the, one of the major checks on the presidency is the next president who can undo everything the previous one did using the same method. The border regents case really is strange to me because it sort of creates a one-way ratchet in terms of you can use prosecutorial discretion to create a program, but then we use the APA to force you to follow a different path to remove it. And so, and I think that has effects on Biden, too, because now he's coming in. He wants to restore the DACA program. There's courts saying you can't do that unless you go through the Administrative Procedure Act. Okay. So it's leaving aside the application of the APA, I mean, you asked a, different, a little bit different question at the beginning. Can Congress demand that the president deport a certain number of people? I mean, or we could also think, can Congress create a new federal crime and then demand that the president um, indict a certain number of people a year for committing that crime, which would seem crazy. But uh, so, Cy, what's your view? I mean, I think crimes are different than than staying in the country. That's a continuous offense. The the crime is committed at a certain point. And obviously, the president can pardon crimes. When Obama was asked about pardoning DACA, you know, people that were in the country, you know, the dreamers, he can pardon them. The problem is they're continuing to commit a crime after he pardons them, right? And so they, he can't, you know, 
eliminate that problem just by pardoning them. I mean, I, you know, John wrote this piece in Texas Law with Robert Delahunty saying that the Obama policy was uh, uh, illegal or unconstitutional. And I, I think John was wrong. I think, um, I think the president um, has prosecutorial discretion implicitly under every statute, right? The Congress passes tons of statutes, does not give the president enough resources to catch every uh, miscreant who violates them. And then the president has to make choices. And I don't think it has to be on a case-by-case basis. I see nothing wrong with a, with a sheriff saying, I'm never going to give a ticket to a, a, a pregnant woman who's going to the hospital, who's speeding. I'm just not going to do that. I think that's, that's a place where we're just not going to apply our discretion. I don't think they have to decide each time they encounter someone who has a really good reason for speeding that they're not going to give a, a, a ticket. So I, I, but I mean, it's even better for Obama. The statute said you could set enforcement priorities. Well, that's what he was doing, right? Um, and so I don't really know, you know, I mean, I, there's a question of whether it's a good idea to not deport the dreamers. Um, and I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying, I think not only would I read statutes that didn't have that as conveying some sort of discretion, I would review, I would, I would read statutes that actually say that as actually conveying what they said they convey, which is authority to set prosecutorial discretion. Could the, could the, could the Congress force the president to deport everybody who's in the United States? I think so. I think they could. They're not going to, right? There's, you know, both, both parties have reasons for not deporting everybody. But, yeah, I mean, I think they could do that because he can't pardon the offense. If they've given him the money, he's got to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. But don't worry. That's just never going to happen, Jennifer. So, Julian, how does it come out under your view, particularly if there's any chance at all that there's an open question whether Congress could regulate the pardon power? The hypo being I think the an hypo instruction that the president must must, must deport people. Must deport people. I mean, my instinct is that that is uh, probably okay. Um, if you are channeling an originalist perspective and resolving contemporary con- constitutional questions with respect to the set of materials that feed into how we talk about what they thought they were doing. I think, I don't know that I have a strong view on it, but I think that's probably right. And then inherent in carrying out the law, would that include a broad enough enforcement discretion that the president can zero out deportations for a category of folks who are in violation of the law under the statute? So, no, I don't think, not if the statute is specific on the point. And what I love about this question and the pushing on the point is how it emphasizes how central statutory interpretation turns out to be, I mean, I think on all three of our views in a, in a real world, um, but certainly on the law execution um, model of what the president can do. I think it's really interesting how some of the most significant like instances that get coded in the discourse as, you know, operatic presidential abuse turn out to be maybe be a little bit closer calls when you look at the actual statute. I, I, I find myself thinking about the Obama non-enforcement. I, I came to the memos thinking this is going to really take me off because Obama did a lot of stuff to take me off. And I came away thinking this is an OLC that's really wrestling with a hard set of constraints in a statute that has a lot more space in it than I realized in historical practice that has more precedent than I realized. And I came to the border wall uh, order thinking, oh, you know, she's probably just running roughshod again. Um, and I kind of came away from reading the statutes like, I don't think that's the right reading of those statutes, but it's not a crazy reading. And I have the same reaction to the eviction moratorium. I, I sort of assumed that it was nuts, and it really isn't nuts. I think it's probably the wrong reading of the statute, 
that's because I'm a purposivist in my interpretive approach. Um, and so I, I think circling back on the idea that at some level, the hard work of generating laws to govern what the expectations are, expecting the executive branch is going to follow through on them, absent some pretty concrete, um, you know, uh, protection under the Constitution. And then like faithful agency coming back to, I forget which of our, our various speakers mentioned it, but several of you did, the idea of the courts and the president sort of trying to work as though, and that's important to emphasize, because of course it isn't actually, but as though they were on a team with the legislature, the legislative process that generated the rules and implement them in good faith. Um, so uh, if there's one thing to learn, it's when you see some big kerfuffle about presidential power, make sure you read the statute before you hold forth. That's great. Oh, yes, absolutely. Panel. So just because if that's right or if what Sai said was right by at the end about this Congress can, you know, make you actually enforce certain cases, then does it not mean that Justice Kagan's article is just a litany of unconstitutional things that President Clinton did? Because right, these are statutory authorities are going to cabinet members, not the, the, the all of these authorities do not mention the president. And the president is directing all these cabinet officers how to use this. The, the, I agree. The, the, how broad or narrow the delegation is maybe the most interesting issue because but he's, you know, the President Clinton is there directing cabinet officers how to perform their statutory mandates. Presumably, both of you seem to think that Congress can right, bypass a president and direct cabinet officers what to do and could even stay in the statute. And don't listen to the president if he or she tells you to use his discretion a certain way. I mean, you know, I don't what, believe that, John. No, no but I don't believe that at said, all. No, because the president, by virtue of the Constitution, is the constitutional executor of federal laws. That's what Pacificus says. Your, your buddy and my buddy. The president has a constitutional right to execute every law. He can't do it, and that's why they create all these people. But you can't vest the authority in these people to do things independent of him any more than you can invest authority in a clerk to decide a case. Okay, this is this is awesome. And I personally could stay for another 10 hours and do this. If maybe I will torture you all later and make you come back and talk to the Gray Center more about these things. But we do have a reception outdoors. And so I'm sure folks want to get there. Before we go, I would love to walk through each three of you and give you all each a chance to make maybe like a minute or two of a closing remark, if you'd like. And I will, before you do that, just thank you very much for your time. Thank you for being transparent about your views and allowing us sort of to sit in on your discussion, um, because you all have clearly all put in a lot of work and years and years of study. And so we're benefiting from it. Um, And so on that note, thank you. And any closing remarks? Sai. I'm going to say it's been a delight to be with here with Julian, John, and Jen, and I'm the only J, not non-J. Um, <laughs> and you can see, you know, people can, you know, disagree, uh, you know, quite a bit about what the executive power is and how far it extends. So, thank you today for indulging us. John. Yeah, I I fully agree with Sai. It's and I think uh, Kristen Hickman said it in the first panel. It's important to be able to disagree uh, in an agreeable fashion. And I worry that we're losing that capacity in our society. So I was glad to see that we could do it here. Awesome, Julian. I would just say this is a terrible experience. Not- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I disagree with you as usual. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, thanks to everybody and to the co-panelists for such a great conversation. Awesome. Thank you all. All right.